Hello and welcome back to yet another episode of the VC Pruna podcast, a podcast that provides a unique perspective of the startup world through the lens of venture capitalists and entrepreneurs. I'm your host Digjay and today I have with me Prasanna Krishnamurthy, founding partner at Upeka, a value SaaS accelerator that works with B2B startups to help them scale and achieve profitable growth. Prasanna has more than 15 years of experience in tech and product. Prior to starting Upega, Prasanna worked closely with 120 plus startups at Microsoft's India Accelerator. In this episode, Prasanna talks about his path leading up to Upega, the fundamentals of a SaaS business, validating the need for your product and acquiring the first 50 customers, what is value SaaS and how Upega is helping founders achieve profitable growth, and the SaaS outlook for India in the next few years. I had a great time chatting with Prasanna and I hope you enjoy this conversation too. So without much ado let's jump in and listen to what Prasanna has to share. Hey Prasanna, welcome to the VC Pruna podcast. Excited to have you on the show. Hey Dijay, thanks. Yeah, so maybe we can start with a brief background about yourself, you know, before we jump into the questions. Sure. I did my uh, schooling and undergrad in uh, Chennai. St Michael's and College of Engineering in D. Uh, then went to the US uh, UT Dallas uh, did my masters there in telecom dropped out of a PhD came back to India joined a company called Tejas Networks then uh, joined a startup called Elena there for about 5 and 1/2 years we sold the IP but didn't make enough money to retire didn't bootstrap another startup to about 35000 pounds in revenue but again didn't go anywhere after that so left that joined Amazon as a product manager in advertising then uh, found out about a position in the microsoft accelerator where i could help with uh, product and growth joined there I spent about 3 years there worked with about 120 companies uh, mostly created a, essentially a program for founders to go through to improve their uh, velocity uh, worked with about 40 b2b startups there then realized that you know saas is something where we can create a semi repeatable more structured playbook so started doing that to pick up about uh, 2017 jan so we're about four years done awesome i mean that's a roundabout journey to you know to end up at saas you know going from marketing to product to finally starting our own accelerator and we've heard a lot about upega and before we get into the weeds and understand upega you know for the benefit of the you know listeners here maybe we can touch upon the fundamentals of saas first and understand how how the approach is different in terms of you know validating your product uh, acquiring your customers retaining them as well as the core skill sets that a team requires uh, when they're building a saas business so maybe we can start with you know just the broad business models that can be included in saas and what are the peculiarities of this business model so the metaphor i like to use is uh, you know the human nervous system so let's say that you know you are trying to learn a new sport and you know how to play table tennis but you're learning how to play tennis what you're essentially doing is there are there is software in your brain but also software in your arms and uh, muscles and needs to be reprogrammed for you to learn how to play tennis even though you know how to play table tennis right so today in an enterprise any business it's thing there is some physical aspect to it there is logistical aspect to it all of that stuff but the nervous system that runs the organization the people that run the organization depend on software to run that operation so now imagine a factory uh, 40 years ago uh, maybe making shoes and so 40 years ago when they make shoes they would be shipping all the shoes to a warehouse today when they make shoes they may be making a limited edition online sold which basically they make only a thousand copies of that shoe and that shoe directly gets sent from the warehouse sorry from the factory to the end customer and maybe the uh, orders only open for uh, you know at a particular time on a particular day and they sell out in like 20 minutes so 
you're thinking about the same factory it's still making shoes but the way they make shoes the number of shoes they make the types of shoes they make the way they ship the shoes all of that stuff has dramatically changed can you use the same software from 40 years ago to run that factory today you can't if you do that it's it's going to stop right now the software that actually assembles the shoes maybe it's, it's the same right but everything around that has changed so now imagine that you were buying software and in the old days you would, would just buy software and you buy that software and you keep using the same software today obviously that looks dumb right because today i'm shipping it via amazon maybe day after tomorrow i ship it via some other channel maybe uh, you know one year from now two years from now you'll be shipping it via drones so the software has to evolve at the pace of your business because a business keeps learning new skills the business's environment is changing so software has to keep changing so you can no longer buy software once implement it and be done that world is gone so that's where saas comes in because software is now a service so it helps you run your business on a day to day basis and as your business environment changes as the type a number of things that you're changing in your business change software has to change and the service offering what you integrate with what you are embedded in all of that stuff has to keep changing right and that's why the subscription model for software now makes a lot more sense because you wanted to play table tennis yesterday you want to play tennis today you want to play football tomorrow and the software has to evolve to keep up with and if you're paying for it on a subscription model then you can actually change which software you are using if you want to or need to or that same software can evolve to meet your needs now this puts a lot of pressure on the software vendor as well right so if i am a saas vendor it's a lot of pressure on me to make sure that i understand the environment that the customer is working in understand how that environment is changing over time understand where they are going to be as a business few days from now few months from now few years from now and embed that into my software right so that is really the power of saas for a customer right and that's where the value is created because if the customer is able to do things that they could not do before and they can do that faster than their competition and they better than their competition because of your software in many cases then you're creating an enormous amount of value for them and part of that value is what comes to you as a vendor of that software as a vendor of that saas product so if you think about it like that now saas is becoming the nervous system for many organizations many of these organizations in the past didn't even have software maybe they were using excel or maybe they were using something that's just cobbled together using some in-house tools but today if you are a saas vendor and you work with 100 customers of a certain type you probably have a deeper understanding of their environment where it's going and so on more domain expertise in that area in the niche that you are operating in so maybe you are working with a delivery for that shoes but you are working with 100 people who deliver shoes so now you know more about the exceptions that can happen the edge cases that can happen in shoe delivery than any one of them might because together in a combined basis you're probably doing more volume on shoe shipments than anybody else right so if you can then package that understanding into the saas product itself and take care of the edge cases in a seamless fashion what you're doing is delivering enormous amount of value to each of these companies which they would not even be able to do by themselves and so you can charge for that now because each of those edge cases may cost a lot for the customer so you can charge more and more so now when you take all these things together hey i am selling you a service which allows you to be a better version of yourself every day month year which allows you to create value for your customers more and more over time then i can charge you on a recurring basis and if your business grows and if what you are doing with me grows i can charge you more over time and that's the beauty of saas because now i am embedded as your nervous system you are not likely to throw me out after a short time correct so salesforce as a saas product still has customers who are buying from them in after 20 years 
So these are customers who joined them in you know 2000 and are still paying them in 2020. And obviously they're going to be probably paying more. It's great for both businesses because now I have a deep understanding of your business. I'm doing more to support you. You are paying me more. So I'm happy as well. Right? And that's the beauty of SaaS. And we think that and it's already happening. India is going to be a huge base for SaaS companies. There are going to be tens of thousands of SaaS companies doing millions of dollars of revenue each. Because every business in the world needs a software nervous system to function. And the nervous system is not static. It has to keep changing with competitive dynamics. And we have enough programmers, enough domain experts, enough customer success people, because it's not just, I can't just give you the software and it will work for you. It's not going to be like that. There's going to be some work involved in making you successful using that software. All of that stuff is going to just explode. And we're already seeing the initial signs of that. Yep, absolutely. And that's a very interesting metaphor, you know, for SaaS. And I've heard it for the first time, uh, but you put it right. You know, a lot of effort goes in terms of, you know, specializing and understanding the value that you want to provide to your customers. And at the same time, if you figure that out, you know, it's sticky uh, at the same time and can go on for a long period of time, which we like to call as recurring revenue uh, in SaaS terms. But definitely, you know, there's a unique approach in terms of how you can get to that point where Salesforce is, for example, today. So first step, you know, how do you validate your product in SaaS? And we'll probably talk in just the B2B context for the rest of the discussion. You know, how do you test the market and gauge the customer's, you know, willingness to pay for your product in the first place? So uh, this is where, uh, you know, people ask me, is SaaS a young person's game or an old person's game, right? And the beauty of B2B is that really boring niche businesses where you have domain expertise, you can make a lot of money. So classic example, one of my friends ran a restaurant and then uh, started building software for restaurants, had done multiple entrepreneurial things in the past. That domain expertise actually helps you build a better product for that space. It's boring and nobody wants to hear it, but that's where experience comes in. So now to understand whether a customer needs a product, a particular product, once you go vertical, once you go niche, at the same time, it's very hard for you to build expertise in that domain or that niche without you having been in it, without literally hundreds of customer conversations. The true measure of whether a customer needs your product is whether they will pay for it and they actually pay for it and buy it. Because a business doesn't want things for free. As we've all seen when Facebook or WhatsApp offer you things for free, in that case, they're selling you. You are the product. You are being sold. Your data is being sold to others. Uh, you are not the buyer. So business doesn't want to be a product, right? The business wants to be a buyer. They're like, I am creating value. I am going to capture the value by doing something. So I don't want anybody else to capture any part of that value. So, and I'm ready to pay for software. So that's what businesses think, right? So when businesses think that way, they're ready to pay for stuff. So if they're not, not paying for your product, then you're not offering enough value. And the beauty of it is if you can help a business improve their revenue, then they will be willing to pay a lot. And they, they will have a budget even for experimenting on things that can help them increase their revenue or increase their profitability. So there is always a pile of money that businesses have, good businesses have, and obviously you don't want bad businesses as your customers. So good businesses have a pile of money to pay for things, to pay for software that will help them improve their revenue or improve their profit. And you have to make sure that you're adding that much value for them to be able to buy it. That's the proof that you know software product actually works. Got it. And, you know, once you are at a step where you validated that uh, and you know that, you know, customers are willing to pay, I want to talk about, you know, customer acquisition and retention here. And, you know, we can split it into two. First is acquiring your first 25, 50 customers. And then the second half would be, how do you retain them? Because, you know, that's the core revenue that you want to keep generating. So I think uh, the first, you know, few customers, first handful of customers, whatever that may be, that typically comes through the network of the founder and referrals 
you have to understand that customers need not just be customers customers could be your partners as well customers could be your sales people as well customers could be a channel as well and especially in business right when you sell to one company there could be 50 people or 100 people using your product so imagine that if you can convert some of them or many of them into your evangelists or your sales people in whatever way shape or form that's very powerful and most founders actually don't do that so you should use your first 100 people so the customers is one thing but 100 people who happen to be working in your customers organization convert them into evangelists and sales people that's the best most cost effective way to get your next handful of customers so the way to think about it is if your product truly offers value some of these people will be ready to become evangelists for you and sales people when your product doesn't offer enough value then they will not and earlier about 20 years ago you can't expect these people to be sales people for you everywhere right because they're in their city they're in their region they can do sales for you maybe in their neighbor's shop that's all they can do but today they can give you a video testimonial which can be shown around the world they can be on post on linkedin where it can be seen by people like them around the world Absolutely. right so today somebody in chennai can sell to somebody in constantinople so anybody any customer for you can sell to any other customer anywhere else as long as they're doing the same business so that's the best way to get the second set of customers. So what we think about is in terms of flywheel. So the inner flywheel is about for a few customers, are you solving the right problem for the right set of people in that organization to create enough value? Because problem defines how much value is there. So are you solving a big enough problem, creating enough value? Are you communicating it the right way? And are you able to convince them to buy? And then because they bought and started using the product, are they using more and more of your product over time? And if they're using more and more of your product over time, are they paying you more and more over time? And are they so happy with your product that they are getting you more customers over time? So this flywheel, once your existing customers start getting you more customers, right? That flywheel is incredibly efficient. And in B2B, in SaaS, if you charge annual upfront rather than monthly, you will be extremely capital efficient, right? Because your customer is paying you money. They, they are happy to pay you money. Let's say your uh, payback period is three months. Let's say you're charging annual upfront. Let's say you're, what you're getting annually is at least two times your CAC. Suddenly your need for capital becomes far, far lower, right? And so that's why you see a Zapier, which raised only about, uh, I think 800K or 1.8 million, today touching 100 million in ARR, like mind blowing, right? Uh, then you see a Calendly, which again raised only half million or a couple of million, uh, which is now at 60 million in ARR. And they've raised a massive uh, secondary round or a couple of billion dollars of valuation. That was never possible before. And so without any capital growing so fast and growing to such scale is uh, amazingly freeing for uh, founders because you don't have to ask permission anymore to anybody else. The only people that you need to take orders from are your customers. And if you make them happy and you're able to get money from them, then uh, you know your source of capital can be your customers and their advances rather than trying to go and convince a third party who you know may not understand the domain may not understand what you're doing and convincing them to get capital is much harder right so basically what we are seeing that you know some of these successful companies they've got the initial two steps right and fundamentally correct in terms of you know if they are able to add enough value for the customers to pay and the approach in terms of acquiring the first set of customers which are you know kind of evangelists for your product and then the flywheel comes in picture and, you know, you can keep recycling and adding more customers as well as increase the revenue that you're, you know, getting from each customer. Uh, you know, after having reached that point, what's important and, you know, particularly important for SaaS is retaining those customers because with every customer that you lose, there's a significant hit, uh, you know, on your revenue stream. And 
thereby on the cash flow as well and the capital efficiency that we are talking about so what are ways that you know a saas founder should think about in terms of you know retaining those customers so that starts with what problem are you solving for the customer and uh, my friend amit of uh, intoyamoka imoka said said this beautifully is the problem you are solving an annual problem a monthly problem a weekly problem an hourly problem right or a minutely problem so if you are solving a problem that's very infrequent then obviously they're not necessarily going to use your product all the time but if you are solving a problem that happens to for them every day every moment right then the product has a potential to be more sticky not that it will be sticky but it has a potential to be more sticky so if you are solving a sticky problem the problem exists all the time therefore the solution has to be there all the time then you have a shot at it so first mistake that i see founders make is they're actually solving an ephemeral problem they're not solving a persistent problem obviously the customer is not going to buy from you all the time it's like vaccine right if you have kids you take a particular vaccine a particular number of times or a particular once once in your life and you're done you're not going to take that vaccine again and again so if you solve a problem like that forget it your your retention is not going to be there you have to design it to be one time but in saas like the nervous system example if you are solving a problem that is persistent then you have to make sure that you're solving it in a way which adds value to all the stakeholders so you know b2b again that problem while it may be for a certain person in the organization the repercussions of that problem happen all over the organization so if a shipment is delayed maybe it's that factory logistics person's problem but actually it goes into the pnl of somebody you know maybe uh, there is inventory problem because of that maybe there is a supplier problem payment problem lots of things are there so now if you are solving that problem of you know shipment how does it impact everybody else are you flowing that information into their systems do they know are they getting value out of your product as well the moment you create that value across the organization rather than only to that one person who's using your product so you have to understand who's the buyer who's the influencer who are the users of that product who is impacted by the product both upstream of that problem and downstream of the problem if you create that much value across the organization then they can't tear it out yeah makes sense right and they won't why would they absolutely and i think it's it's coming back you know to the core of understanding the problem and solving it deep enough that you know it creates value for all stakeholders like you mentioned and if you do that you know there's no reason why a customer would you know leave you after using it for the first or second time uh, which brings me to the question you mentioned about the experience that one should have to understand the problem deeply enough apart from the specialization itself you know in the sector that you're you know building a saas product what are the other core skill set you know that you've seen in founders who build successful saas companies beyond the core expertise or you know sector knowledge uh, that makes them you know successful at what they're doing right so uh, i think the term t shaped founder has become like popular so what you want is the deep domain expertise that's the bottom of the t so you want that depth in a few things but you also have to be good at a whole bunch of other things so obviously you have to be good at sales and you know if you unpack sales as having conversations and delivering value and getting paid for the value uh, you have to be good at marketing and positioning and communication is very critical because one you have to understand what the other person is saying and you have to be able to communicate back in a good way Uh, you have to be good at relationships because saas is all about relationships you want to have a relationship with that customer which extends through time and space and so on so these are important things uh, strategy is very critical because the world is changing quite fast your customers world is changing quite fast your world is changing quite fast so if you don't pick the right path for implementing the things that you are thinking about then you are going to fail down the road if not now so these are all important skills that uh, founders need to have unfortunately strategy for example is something that's very hard to learn it comes only through experience of cycles right so you do something you see whether it succeeded or failed and then you do it again you see whether it succeeded or failed you do it again and there's no way to short circuit that learning right 
other things that are required. So as a founding team, you will need a lot of skills in SaaS because functionally any SaaS business from nearly day zero uh, will need from marketing. It will need some product. It will need some tech. It will need customer success. It will need customer support. You need integrations. You need you know ops. You need so many different things that will be needed to deliver that value even to your first customer. Uh, but the beauty of it, the customers are ready to pay upfront. Even the first customer will be ready to pay upfront. So that's the you know advantage of doing SaaS. Right. And it's, it's interesting because, you know, there's this whole set of skill sets that you need early on, uh, even yeah. though the customer is willing to pay upfront early stage SaaS companies or, you know, bootstrap companies for that matter, can't afford to have uh, their first 10 hires to be people who are experienced enough. They might have to, you know, trade off with someone who's less experienced, uh, but has the potential to become a good founding team member, you know, uh, for the SaaS company. So how do you, you know, identify those people? Because that's the toughest challenge I would say, you know, after solving for the product that, you know, the founders have to solve for. Honestly, I'm, I'm not like super, super sure about that, right? You can build a stellar team uh, early on if you get your customers to pay you enough early stage in SaaS, you may end up doing a little more on the consulting side, a little more on the services side, which can quickly pay for all of these kind of folks in a very, very good way. You may not need to hire junior people. If you're going after enterprise globally, your first customer could pay you $100,000 in advance right? if you have the relationships and stuff like that. Now, the challenge comes when you are discovering all of these things and you are not getting paid and you are not able to pay people and so on and so forth, right? So that I think is where you know, experienced founders or founders who've done it before, or people who have domain expertise before are able to raise capital from those same customers in many cases, right? Uh, it may not be the customer org, but it may be the CEO of the customer who says, let me invest in you. What you're saying makes sense. And that capital can become useful in hiring. You have to tune it to who you're selling to. If you're selling it to Fortune 500, you will probably have to deliver at a very high quality level. Therefore, you will need uh, much better people versus, uh, you know, if you're selling into SMB, your marketing and your product have to be top notch. Uh, but if you're solving a problem that nobody has solved before, then you don't know whether a market exists for that. So each of these comes with different challenges. So you will have to, you can't hire uniformly, you know, top notch people for every function. You can't hire uniformly freshers or young people for everything. Yeah. So you have to figure out your strategy in your market. Are you going after a crowded market? So therefore, your marketing or product have to set you apart. So in those, you're going to be really, really good. In the others, you're going to figure out. Or you're going to go into a space where customer success is very important. So that's going to be something that you're going to focus on. But, you know, maybe marketing and sales uh, does not need as experienced people. So that balance has to be there. You will need people with a lot of experience in some areas and people with less experience in other areas. Right. So, I mean, what I'm hearing is, you know, there are a lot of moving parts which you need to get it right. And uh, probably one way to solve that is come to Upeka. <laughs> the accelerator, you know, that you're running. Uh, so, you know, I want to shift gears here and talk about Opeka and, you know, what you guys are, you know, trying to solve for. Uh, but before that, tell us about, you know, the inspiration behind starting Opeka. What was the mission and, you know, what's the problem statement that you are trying to solve for? So when I was working with 120 startups, about 40 of them were SaaS startups uh, and realized that, you know, SaaS, there are some counterintuitive things in SaaS businesses because it's a recurring model. Uh, some of the things that you have to do upfront in order to get value much later. But if you do them wrong, then you lose a lot of value in the future. And that's very hard for founders to figure out uh, by themselves. So the idea was, if you fix some of these things foundationally very early on, then you can get a huge amount of disproportionate value both to customers and yourself later on. And this can be permissionless, right? You don't, you don't need anybody's capital. You don't need anybody's permission other than your customers. So that was kind of the inspiration for starting the whole thing. 
from a mission perspective, we want to help at least a thousand founders have meaningful founder outcomes financially by delivering value to customers, by getting value for their business. So if we help a thousand founders get to their first million and then first 10 million in annual recurring revenue, that basically will create, you know, hundred thousand jobs, a million jobs over the period of time. Right. Got it. And, you know, the entire conversation that we've had so far, it's revolved around, you know, understanding the problem and adding value. And that's one of the things, you know, which stuck out for me when I visited Pekka's website. Uh, and there's a term called value SaaS right there. So, you know, if you could unpack that for our listeners and explain, you know, what do you mean by value SaaS? And why is it very important for, you know, SaaS businesses? Sure. So value SaaS is the opposite of vanity SaaS, right? So no vanity SaaS is also the way we say it. Right? So, so essentially, you know, chasing more customers is not necessarily useful. Just chasing revenue, if there is churn, it's not useful. Traditionally, a lot of uh, entrepreneurship, startup ecosystem founders, right? End up chasing metrics which are not balanced and that becomes vanity. Hey, valuation is what I'm going after. Valuation is not necessarily good enough and valuation increases may not be good for the founders or the employees in the long term, right? So you have to think about, hey, what are the value metrics that I'm going after? And value metrics typically come down to how much recurring revenue do I have? How low can I drive my churn and how sticky can I make my customers? How much value am I adding to them in life? How much value am I adding to my employees in life? So uh, the moment you start thinking about what is true value in the B2B SaaS space, and that starts with the problem and the value of the problem you are solving and move all the way back. Then you can build a very, very solid business. Coming a valuable business as a side effect of delivering value to customers. And that's why we call it value SaaS. So value to customers, value to employees, value to founders, value to investors, stakeholders, building that in a holistic manner. You know, this kind of ties to the, you know, capital efficiency uh, aspect that we discussed about. And right. there's another interesting thing uh, that I'd mentioned uh, in one of the podcasts that I've, I was listening to earlier. Uh, it says, you know, most startups die due to indigestion, then starvation. And that relates to fundraising and capital efficiency in a way. So, you know, if you can just unpack that as well. Sure. So, you know, 70, 80% of startups that are uh, venture funded die. So reality is that many of them take too much capital too early and start spending that money without figuring out whether they're solving the right problem. And so if you're solving the wrong problem and you're spending money trying to do it at scale, then essentially you're going to have a capital indigestion problem where you're spending the money on the wrong things or you're not even able to spend the money, but people are forcing you to spend that money. You're trying to scale that business and you end up failing. Versus a lot of businesses which uh, are funded uh, by customer capital, if you will, they end up having to be more uh, conscious about what is my return on the invested capital. And therefore, when they make that decision of what to put money in, uh, they put in money on things that provide a better return on capital. And therefore, they become more capital efficient over time. And that DNA then helps them over a period of time to provide a better return on capital and therefore be more capital efficient and survive longer even during the bad periods. Uh, versus if you become too addicted to capital, then it's very hard to come back and build a DNA that's not addicted to excess capital lying around. And so the classic example is uh, the founder of Viva. He was ex-Salesforce. Uh, he joined up with a pharma industry exec, both of them together uh, started a company called Viva in about 2007-8 in that time frame. Uh, they raised venture capital, uh, they raised the seed round 3-4 million, raised a venture round about 4 million and uh, they spent about 4 million of that or 3 million of that, then realized that if they keep spending that money, they'll be addicted to that spending that capital and need to raise more and more over a period of time. 
Instead, what they decided to do was focus on customer revenues. And we were hit a 50 million in revenue and IPO'd. Now they're at a billion dollars in ARR. So 2008 to now, they're at a billion dollars in ARR. Uh, their obviously PE multiples are crazy today. So, And they did that on $3 million raised. Right? So that is value size. No, absolutely. And, you know, it ties to the fact that, you know, getting addictive to capital is ultimately diluting your ownership as a founder and as the early team, which is, you know, crucial to safeguard, uh, especially in times where, you know, funding is abundant today, you know, capital is getting commoditized and there's so much capital that founders, it's a tough decision to not take those dollars to accelerate their growth. So what are some inefficient ways of, you know, spending that capital and what are the repercussions after that? So, so I think on, on the one hand, right, in B2B SaaS, whoever has taken money as well, most of the folks who have taken money are very conservative about spending it, most of them. Because fundamentally, you can't even ship that money to your customers. Your customers are not... Look, I know somebody who lost a very large US contract because they bid too less. Because somebody at the customer's organization said, look, whatever this bid is, this amount, if you're charging me this much, you cannot deliver the quality of service that I demand. It's not possible. So therefore, we will not award it to you because you may be optimistic about it, but I don't want you to run at a loss because if you run at a loss, imagine I am installing you as my central nervous system. If my nervous system dies, I will die. I can't take that cost, right? So I want you as my customer to be profitable. So that's where you can't ship that money to your customers as well. Unlike in a B2C context, right? Where customers are happy to receive money from in discounts or cash back or otherwise. So in a B2B, it's hard to spend that money. So what typically happens, and these are a few of the mistakes that people have made, is uh, building out a large sales team before you know how to sell the product. So if you have not done founder sales, where the founder has done sales, then transition to a founder-led sales, where you are helping some people sell your product. Then transition to a sales without founder sales. If you don't do that transition, then and directly hire a large sales team, it's probably going to fail. In B2B, again, it's possible to spend a lot. It used to be possible to spend a lot on events and stuff like that without knowing whether the event is actually working for you or not. Well, COVID has made that difficult as well. In B2B, truly, it's hard beyond hiring people to spend a lot of money. So, And the Indian founders are, in general, conservative. People are not subsidizing customers. Almost everybody I know is definitely unit economic positive. Maybe margins are 60%, 50%, not 70%, 80%. But that will be fixed over time. I know people have overbuilt infra, but again, infra is such a small percentage of your cost that, you know, it's not likely to be that big a deal, but it's truly hard to overspend in SaaS beyond your employee costs. So building up too many teams before there is demand for each of those teams, hiring far too senior a person to run a particular function. So maybe you need marketing, but maybe you're just doing marketing at small scale. Do you really need a VP marketing before when you're at hundred K revenue? You definitely need a VP marketing when you're at a million dollar plus revenue. That can get expensive pretty quick. That's really helpful. And, you know, coming back to Opeka, tell us more about the cohort size that you're running and the operating model that you have. Sure. So today we take about 10 to 15 startups per cohort. We take a cohort every six months. So the next cohort will start in, I think, April or May. And we start applications in February or March. So we take those startups. It's a, The first part of it is what we call base camp. We take founders who are between $1,000 monthly revenue to a $10,000 monthly revenue, and we help them build that initial flywheel. So are you solving the right problem? Does it have right amount of value? Are you selling to the right people? Or are you positioning it as? All of those things are the you know root cause of a lot of the other symptoms. So we help them solve that in the first six months. Once that is solved, then they move into our UX kind of a program where that's more about now repeating this flywheel again and again and doing more and more of that business over time. 
we charge equity for this. We don't provide funding for the initial part of the program, taking 4% equity plus rev share and so on. And then once people graduate to the second part of the program, that's when uh, we also now run a rolling fund and we inject capital at that point saying, hey, if you if you can use some amount of capital to grow faster, what would happen? Awesome. Well, uh, before we get into the rapid fire and the final segment, uh, you know, one last question. Uh, you've been in the SaaS business for you know quite a while now. What are some promising trends that you've seen over the last four or five years? What are the positives that you know stand out for you? And where are we headed? You know, in the next five years. Sure. So I come back to the metaphor you used. Every business in the world needs a nervous system to be able to run. Uh, the world is evolving faster. Their competition is evolving faster. Their ecosystem is evolving faster. And so their nervous system needs to be agile. It cannot be fixed software. It has to be software as a service for every business in the world, no matter whether you're one person doing a business for 10 people or 100 people, 1,000 people, million people business. It doesn't matter. You're going to need software. And that software uh, is going to become both horizontal software. So like a Gmail, everybody uses Gmail, everybody buys Gmail. Or Adobe, Photoshop, everybody buys Photoshop, everybody uses Photoshop. On the other hand, you'll have like vertical specialized software like Aviva, which is selling only to a thousand pharma companies in the world. They have only like hundred to few hundred customers, right? Super specialized vertical software. So all of these software will become that nervous system for all these businesses, create an enormous amount of value and get an enormous amount of value because this software has a margin of 70, 80% gross margin. So that I think is the trend over the next five years, 10 years, 20 years, where we're going to see literally software as a service going from today about 150 billion in annual sales to probably a trillion or two trillion in annual sales and powering everything, right? And so every company is going to be able to speak to every other company through software, through APIs. And that transformation has just begun. It'll take 10 years, 20 years to happen. So market reason 10 years ago said software is eating the world today. SaaS is eating software. And that's a trend. I think that's super exciting because A, it creates a lot of value for customers. B, it creates a lot of revenue for software vendors. C, it creates lots of jobs for uh, people in India. As well. Yeah. And, and why do you think, you know, India is uniquely positioned to dominate that market in the coming years? So to deliver the software and to be, to make your customers successful with the software, uh, you need marketing, you need sales, you need pre-sales, you need integrations, you need uh, customer success, you need product, you need tech. So you need a lot of people to cook this and deliver it. And all these are different skill sets. So if you have to be able to assemble this team of skilled people with different skills to be able to deliver this one thing to X. That set of people, uh, it will be difficult for someone outside to be able to assemble that. Uh, in India, these, this is fairly easy to assemble. So the IT services companies, the BPOs and the KPOs, they've actually built some of these skill sets at scale, right? Literally hundreds of thousands of people have a customer uh, handling skill set, mindset, all of those kind of things, right? So that pool of talent is there in India across these skills and they can be tapped to do all these things. Yeah. And especially with the entrepreneurial wave that we are seeing in India and, you know, the excitement couldn't be, you know, more in, in the ecosystem. A lot of people out, you know, are going to come out of those BPOs and start their own companies uh, with the right skill set and the right experience that is required from a SaaS founder. So Prasanna, with that, you know, we'll uh, jump into our final segment, which is the rapid fire round. I'll ask a few questions and, you know, hope to get your immediate thoughts on the same. Sure. Okay. One thing that you'd like to change to improve the state of the Indian startup ecosystem. Yeah. So I think more people becoming entrepreneurs is great. We need a huge amount of reduction in the cost of doing business in India. I was reading somewhere that 170 compliances are there per year. So we need less time spent on compliance, more time spent on business. If you had to give a TED talk, 
what topic would you choose and why so uh, value sas so how do you deliver value to customers and yourself as a business <laughs> that's an easy one and i'm surprised we haven't seen that ted talk yet but you know looking forward to seeing that soon next question vcs and founders from the ecosystem that you admire and look up to so i think a couple of categories one is bloom founders are incredibly founder friendly great respect among founders for who they are and i think from a sats perspective i think shekhar kirani has done enormous amount of work to help founders and he is very blunt and he is very uh, open and i love the fact that because he was an operator he is able to speak to them really well upcoming uh, vcs startup founder called priya who is now part of a fund called venture highway oh yes we had priya on the show very recently yeah so she's uh, very very helpful to founders as well so these are some of the folks that i look up in the ecosystem and on the founder side uh, what are the founders that you know you admire uh, in b2b saas today i think one person who's changed the whole landscape completely is of course grace right Girish has built literally huge business, freshworks in Chennai. Chennai would not have been twice for a lot of people. So he's brought Chennai on the map. He's brought SaaS on the map, and the amount of support and help he's done to the ecosystem is just incredible. So Girish for sure. I have to look within Upeka. I uh, I always love the story of you know Amit of Intermoka, Imoka today. He's from a place in interior Maharashtra, built a services startup, sold that, then started up product company. Been doing it for five years now. and they've hit initial scale now and their customers love them and they're growing super super fast and extremely good at marketing they're beating global competitors on marketing with a very low small budget and one of the things that i love about uh, him and his team is that they're extremely good to their employees so they build a very very loyal set of employees uh, they do a lot for their team and that's one of the reasons why we want to build more saas businesses in india because we want founders to be able to do all the stuff they want yeah now uh, that's beautiful uh, prasan and more power to you and opega you know to continue doing that for a lot of saas founders that are coming up uh, any final thoughts for current and aspiring founders who are listening to this so for founders especially if uh, they've already hit scale and they made money in the opega fund most of the lps that we are taking are actually founders so we'd love to have you on board to both invest in younger startups and to help them scale that's one Uh, number two for founders who are not yet at scale or early in their journeys in B2B, focus on customer value. Uh, if your customers are not selling for you, you have to figure out whether you're adding enough value to that customer. Right, awesome, Prasanna. This has been you know very educational and very insightful. I'm sure our listeners are going to take away a lot of value from this episode. Uh, thank you so much for taking out time. Really enjoyed having you with us on the show today, and hope to have you back soon again. Sure, thanks, Ajay. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of the VC Bruno podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please let our guests know about it. Share your thoughts on social media and let them know what were your key takeaways. We would truly appreciate if you could subscribe to our podcast on the podcast platform of your choice and leave us a review on Apple iTunes. This will help others discover the podcast. To get insights and to learn more about startups and venture capital, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram. We will love to hear from you there. You can find all episodes together on our website thevcpreneur.com. We will be back again next week with another VC preneur that is making a dent in the venture universe. Until then, take care and keep shining.